Okay, what I want to what I want to do. My objective in this next hour is going to be to to try and um, give you a presentation that you can take back with you that is that is crucial for your churches. And so um, take good notes. This is this is going to be an interactive presentation, and I want I want you to to learn it as an interactive presentation. Therefore interact with me, okay? And uh, I think it's going to be something that's going to be very important. Ju just to tell you, um, my name is David. I too uh, have been involved in, in the 12-step recovery process for over 30 years. And you know what? I find that I still am involved in it, and that enriches my, my teaching and the seminary, the social work department, because it's fresh. It's fresh. It's still, I'm still a work in process, and I'm grateful for that. So what I'm going to be sharing with you this morning is called the cycle of addiction. Dysfunction and sin. And the reason that I am putting all three of these down here is that in different contexts, you may choose to emphasize different aspects of this. But the paradigm works for all of them. Okay? And when you do this, you'll see that as we develop it, if you could do it on a, on a whiteboard that's longer rather than a flip chart, it would be much better because you'll see that it, it develops kind of as a, as a cycle. I wish I had more space like this to do it, but we'll work within the constraints that we have. So, um, and so basically this is going to be taking a look at addiction from a, from a family perspective rather than a neurobiological perspective. Um, and the key text that I like to refer people to is Deuteronomy chapter five, verse nine, that says that the iniquity of the fathers is visited upon the children to the third and fourth generation. Now we often, you know, we know the verse, but how does that happen? How does it happen? That's what I want to try and unpack this morning with us, is how does that actually happen in a family dynamic? So the wonderful thing about addiction is it's, it's a relational construct. Yes, it's neurobiochemical, but, but there's, there's this whole layer of relationality to it. And so that's, the, that's what we're going to be focusing on right now. So we're going to start with a relationship then. Boy meets girl. And you can see my wonderful artistic ability here. Boy meets girl. Oh, she's got to have some hair. There we go. Okay. Now... I want you to think about yourself, and I want you to tell me what kind of qualities would you want to have in a relationship? So you just talk to me, and I'm going to write. Just go ahead and... You want the board back a little bit? How's that? Okay. So what kind of qualities would you like to have in a relationship? Your ideal relationship, what would you like? Trust, okay. Honesty, respect. Okay, respect. I'm just going to catch up with you. Love, caring. What else? Understanding. Understanding. Listener. What did you say? Someone who would appreciate you. Appreciation. Okay. I'm sorry. Respect. That's yeah. We have that one. That's a good one. That's a great one. Supportive. And someone said a friend. A friend. Okay. Someone who's loyal. Okay, very good, very good. Anything else you'd want on your list? Remember, make this personal now. This is their list. What do you want on your list? 
spirituality or common belief. Very good. Common belief. Okay. Now, often what you'll find is that, you know, people come up with different aspects on your list. Whatever they tell you, you know, write it down. It's, it's all good, right? Because this is, this is them. This is their list. And so we'll work with this as our list this morning, okay? And so the next thing is, do you want these qualities to be mutual? Should they go both ways? Or are you expected to give something and not receive it in return? So there is a mutuality about it, right? And so we want it to be both ways. Okay, so let's make an assumption here that we have this, this wonderful couple and that all these wonderful qualities are present. Okay? Now that's a leap of faith, but let's, let's make an assumption that that's what is. And so they get married. You know, they love one another. They get attracted to one another. They get married. And then they have some children. They have a little girl, a little boy, and they might have a little baby. Okay. So they have some children, and they live happily ever after <laughs> until something happens. Okay? Let's, let's introduce a factor now into this happy Brady Bunch family. And that factor is going to be A. Or addiction. Now, when an addiction comes into play in a family dynamic situation, let's assume here that the father is the addict, and it could be the mother, it could be both of them. I mean, often we see families where everyone has some type of addiction going on. But let's assume for the sake of our discussion right now that it's the father who has the addiction. What happens to his focus of attention when addiction comes into being? His addiction and himself. His addiction and himself. So all of his energy, all of his time, he, his life becomes taken over, if you will, by the addiction. Okay? And so what happens then to what his wife was getting? from him prior to that. Is this thing mutual anymore? It's not, right? It's not. In fact, what she was getting, now the addiction is, get, is getting. Therefore, could we call, from a sin perspective, could we call addiction an adulterous relationship? That's not a leap, right? Some, I'm, I'm not talking necessarily about actual physical adultery, but I'm talking the essence of the relationship itself is adulterous, right? So we have adultery here. There's another term I like to use too because let's assume this, this man is a Christian and he had a relationship with God. What happens to his relationship with God? Often we know that addicts are spiritually bankrupt. Their relationship with God gets, if you will, diminished or weakened. And certainly we could call then this addiction a form of idolatry. In other words, it is taking God's place. Is that a leap of faith? Okay. So we have adultery, idolatry. His focus is on the addiction now, what happens, what happens with his wife's focus now? What is she going to attempt to do when she finds her husband's affections being drawn away from her up to the addiction? What is she going to try to do? She's going to try to fix it, right? How does she try to fix it? She tries to control it, maybe? Okay, exacting promises, if you loved me, you wouldn't do this, um, you know, trying to throw out the alcohol or drugs or trying to make comments, whatever she's going to do to fix it, to control it, so that the family still looks good. 
That's her, that's her agenda. I want the family to look good. I don't want the world, the neighbors, the church to know what's really going on here. So all of her energies are focused on trying to control the addiction. And is that possible? No. Okay. So what happens then in this addictive process to what they had? What happens when there's addiction to trust, to honesty? to love, to caring, understanding, listening, all these wonderful qualities that you thought you had. What happens to them? They disappear or the loyalty is to the addiction rather than to the, to the family unit, right? I mean, all of that gets messed up. What they had is no longer there. And there's the whole process of grieving and that goes along with you know, with this change in dynamic in addictive families that is important to understand from a dynamic situation. But here's, here's the challenge. What happens to these children? Okay, we're talking here about a family system. Okay, parents and children, a family system. So what happens to the children in this family system? In many ways, they become, if you will, a subsystem in the family and develop ways of surviving in this family because dad's not here for me, mom is trying to manage this addiction as well, and so the kids' needs are basically left unattended to. So often we see the oldest one maybe taking on a parental role, caring for the younger ones and, and, and so forth. And, and so these kids are not allowed to be children. They have to grow up quickly into little adults and manage, if you will, the feelings of the family, manage um, all of the other dynamics of the family, cooking, cleaning, making sure that, that they can make mommy and daddy happy. And what they do, unfortunately, is they take this problem on as if they're to blame, as if they are the ones to blame. They don't understand that the addiction is really the issue and, and dad's you know, consenting to it and, and that it's taken dad over and mom over. But they see that if only I were a better little girl or boy, mommy and daddy wouldn't fight like they do when they're drunk or whatever. They wouldn't have all these arguments. They'd still be here. And so they basically take it on as if it's theirs. Okay. Now, I want to talk for a few moments about the love needs of these children the love needs of these children. I'm going to identify seven of them, and we're going to go through them rather quickly just because we have to stay within our time frame. But the first one is affection and nurture. In healthy families, where do children get affection and nurture, and how is it expressed? Through their parents, right? They're primary caregivers. And remember this, our parents stand in the place of God in the lives of their children. Amen? Amen. Okay, so when, when do they get affection and nurture? So when a, when a mother is nursing her baby, there's an exchange of nurture, right, of, of food. But what else is there an exchange of? Touch. Of what? Touch. Of touch. Very important. And also communication between that mother and that child that, baby, you are safe right here in my arms. I love you. You know, this is a safe place. And what happens is this, this basic love need gets met during the first year of emotional development. And it causes what we call the establishment of basic trust. Basic trust. It's basic trust is the foundational building block of character. And we know that character is formed by the age of three. It's finished by the age of seven, developmentally. So these years in this addictive family are critical to this child's development. And so when they get a plenty of affection and nurture, I love you, hugs, safe hugs, warmth, that kind of thing, they learn some important things about life and about themselves. They learn that 
life can be trusted, that my parents can be trusted, and by implication that God can be trusted. Because God is our heavenly father, if you will, our heavenly parent. So that's the learning that takes place with plenty of affection and nurture. When they don't get plenty of affection and nurture, they develop what we call performance orientation. In other words, my sense of lovability is connected with what I do, with how I perform. And this structure that they build is very deep, okay, very deep. And so plenty of affection and nurture gives them the, the ability to know that I can trust other people even if they make mistakes. I can let other people be human because I've learned that I have a safe place in which to operate and in which to be, okay. The second basic love need is affirmation. And Betty talks so brilliantly about this one that I'm not going to take a lot of time with this one. But basically, to affirm someone is to communicate a message. And, and these messages are not just verbal messages, by the way. If I hit you, I'm giving you a message, even if I don't give you a word, right? There's a message connected to it. And so we communicate these messages in many different ways. And to affirm someone is basically to communicate to them their essential value and worth. A lot of people who don't know that even get into, and th this is something that we struggle a lot with, even in the seminary, we struggle a lot with people who don't know their own essential value and worth. They try to get their value and worth from God, but it turns out to be an addictive thing because they're using God to get something that they don't now have. Does that make sense? And so there's this fine discrimination line that often we cross into religious addictions and, and all of that, that that we need to be very much aware of, especially in churches like ours with very high performance standards. Okay, so, so affirmation, though, is an extremely important one. Jesus was affirmed, right? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. How many of you heard that when you were kids? This is my beloved daughter. Oh, I love you. I'm glad you're in this world. I'm glad you're in my life. Wow. I mean, how many of you really got that message, whether it was spoken verbally, non-verbally, that you just knew that, oh, yeah, I'm wanted. I'm, you know, I'm just precious to my parents. You know, that's, that's how God relates to us with that kind of just unabashed, unashamed embrace of, of, of affirmation. And so... It's important. Okay, the next one I want to talk about is um, acceptance. No, what was it, time? Um, attention, there we go. Thank you, honey. Attention. Now, it used to be said that you know, quality time is what's important, right? And it is, spending quality time with your kids. However, what research is showing now is that it's not just quality time, but it's quantity of time as well that's important. In a today's world where people are working two or three jobs or whatever they have to do in order to make ends meet or keep up with the Joneses, they don't spend the kind of quality time with their kids that the children really need in order to grow and to develop the way they need. This is a basic love need of of children for you to be involved in their life you know what I love to do now with my grandbabies is I get down on the floor and play with them I mean we just play trucks and cars and whatever to make them laugh and hug them I mean I get down into their world we make the mistake very often of making our children come up into our adult world and they you know they get missed in the process of that their love needs get missed and so getting down attending to them is extremely extremely important and doesn't God do that with us He's entered into our world as a manual. He's become one of us. He interacts with us in such beautiful, personal ways. And so, you know, this basic love need, you know, I, I remember, God is love, right? God is love. And so he's given us needs 
that he alone is designed to meet fully, but our parents are designed to meet foundationally. And so, and so all of these needs are, are things that God, God gives. Protection, an essential, an essential um, love need. Now, there are many ways of describing this protection thing. For example, I, you know, as a, as a parent, I put locks on the doors, locks on the windows. I didn't want anyone snatching my kids. I did, you know, the locks um, under the sink so they wouldn't get into poisons. I did the, the little things over the, over the electrical outlet so they wouldn't get zapped. I mean, those are, that's protection, and that's important protection. But the kind of emotional protection that children need go far beyond simply that, okay? Protection means, you know, if need be, I'm gonna fight for you. Remember that, remember that father that got on the bus recently and he just let everyone know that bullying his daughter was no longer acceptable and, and you know, he kind of got taken off the bus and got into a little bit of trouble for it. But his daughter knew that he loved her so much that no matter what, he was going to fight for her. Have you ever had someone fight for you that way? Or they just kind of left you to yourself? You know, this is an important love need. But also, even beyond that, when parents establish rules in the home, okay, do this, don't do this, you know, because I love you and I want you to be safe, that's an important part of protection. It's helping children learn this concept of boundaries that we're going to be talking about tomorrow, okay? And so, so protection basically is not a rule that I make to make my life better, but it's a rule that I'm making for you, for your safety. And the Spirit of Prophecy talks about there should be few rules, but they need to be consistently enforced. Okay, and so when children know those rules which in which they function, they function well within those parameters. But when there are none, when there's permissiveness or when there's overprotection, then children have great difficulties with that. Okay, the next love need is discipline. Discipline. And doesn't the book of Hebrews tell us that the Lord chastens those whom he loves. loves, right? So this is a very clear love need. Now, discipline doesn't mean beating them up. Discipline means to teach them, to disciple them with the objective of, I want you to be able to function successfully as an adult one day, and so I'm trying to equip you or disciple you for success in this world without me. That's basically what wise parenting does. And so disciplining is, how can I correct you in such a way that you're gonna learn from this? Too often, parents who are unwise discipline their children because kids make them look bad. And that's about who? Is that about the kid or about the parent? It's about the parent. And so again, there's so much more to be said about this. Okay, now after discipline then comes another basic love need, and that is comfort. Comfort. And so, um, when, when your child falls down and skins their knee and comes crying to you, or when that happened to you when you were a little boy or girl, how did your parents handle it? Did they, did they comfort you appropriately? Or did they say, stop crying, cry baby, get up. Now stop acting like a sissy. Okay? You see, God is called in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our tribulations. Okay? Many of us don't know God as a comforter. We might know him as a savior, a lord, you know, you know, you know someone who's transcendent, holy, all of these things, but we don't know him personally, especially, especially as a little one, as a comforter. And, and here's something I want to really tell you, and that is this. When you're, you had all kind of hurts and pains as a little child, you know, rejections and so on and so forth, and you become an adult, and those things have not been comforted, 
those things have not been comforted, you're not going to be, you're not going to know God as a comforter. You're going to have to learn about God as a comforter all over again. And what do addicts do? And, you know, when I use something, whether it's food from the refrigerator, sex, whatever it may happen to be, when I use something, it is usually to deal with what? Pain. I'm hurting. I'm a hurting little boy or little girl who's never had my basic... And so, you know, I used to be director of a 32-bed inpatient treatment program. It was a great program. And you know what? Here's what, I, here's what we found. We taught people the steps and, you know, worked them through the steps in treatment, all the stuff that classic treatment programs do. But who relapsed? Who were the ones that relapsed? The ones who we were not able yet to get to this level of pain. They still needed to do something to deal with this. Okay, to deal with this. And so they might stay clean and sober from alcohol or drugs, but what would they do? They'd start using food or they'd start using sex or something else because the core of the addictive process had not been ministered to. This is what Jesus can do, the God of all comfort. And again, we don't have a lot of time to unpack that right now, but I just want to say to you that if there's still some hurts and wounds, Jesus wants to minister to you there, and he will if you ask him to. And again, remember the angry thing that Betty talked about earlier? God's big enough to handle that stuff. Let them be angry. You know, that doesn't matter to God. You're the one that matters to God. Okay? Now, here's the last love need before I, before I go on. And... Um, what is the last one? There we go. I'm sorry. I'm, guidance. Now, this is particularly important when you get into, um, a, into a adolescence, guidance. Now, guidance is, as a child, I know that my parents are going to give me godly counsel. Okay? I can come to them. How many of you, when you were getting into your young adolescent years, could go to your parents and tell them everything? And they wouldn't, they wouldn't condemn you, they wouldn't, they wouldn't you know, talk about you, they wouldn't beat you up, they wouldn't lecture you. That's the big thing, you, know, we wouldn't, you wouldn't get lectured, but they would listen to you carefully, even if you told them how badly you messed up and you were still safe to do that with them, okay? God wants you to be safe to do that with him, to tell him anything. He knows it anyway. He's just waiting for you to embrace it and to tell him. And then for him to say to you, now son, you know, this is, this is what I think, you know, this is what my word says. You know, God does talk to you, you know. He talks to you very personally about you and about what you need and, and guidance that you might need. So these are, these are some of the basic love needs. The important point here is that the children in addicted families don't get these needs met. Therefore, they go around life trying to get them met. That's their big thing in life. My love needs weren't met, and so I'm going to try and get my love needs met through you. Okay, we, in other words, I'm saying this directly, but it's true. We use people to get our love needs met. We use them. We don't intend to, but that's what we do. We're just kind of broken little ones, kind of using people to try and make ourselves whole. But that's backwards because that's not, that's not God's plan for relationships. But that is what we do. Okay, so in these dysfunctional families, there are basic rules by which these families live. Don't talk. Don't trust. Don't feel. Be perfect. Make me look good. 
And so don't talk about what's going on in this family because you'll make us look bad. Okay? Stuff your feelings. You're not allowed to have feelings because if you have feelings about what's going on, about, you know, when I come home drunk and, or, you know, throw up on the, uh, you know, on the carpet or, you know, whatever I do, you make me look bad. If you come and talk to me about your feelings, then I'm going to have to start addressing mine. And I'm trying to run from my feelings. That's what my addiction's about. You know, don't trust anybody. You know, and often in, in, in some addictive homes, we have to be honest, there is abuse that goes on, and you don't talk about that, okay? Be perfect, though. You have to be perfect, even though I'm not. The mixed message, okay? And again, you have to do all these things in order to make me or make this family system look good. These are dysfunctional rules. They may never be spoken but the message is clearly communicated. This is what you have to do. This is what you have to do. So these are rules that are very, very important. There are also roles that are taken on in these dysfunctional families. There are roles. Of course, there's the addict role. <clears throat> but also there is what we call the chief enabler role. And the chief enabler is most often the spouse, most often, but not always. But what does an enabler do in a dysfunctional family? Covers for them, calls in on the job, you know, oh, he's got the flu, and he's really not got the flu, so they lie, you know, to cover for the, for the addict. They fail to intervene and keep the addiction if you will, going. Okay, sometimes they might buy their substance for them or whatever it may happen to be, but they're the ones that, their, their script in life, if you will, their chief role that they've taken on is to enable the addict to continue the, the addictive process. Often though, in the family, there is what's called the family hero. Now, we have a picture of a messed up family here, right? But someone has to make the family look good. So what does the family hero do? Family hero is often the one that goes out and is very successful in business, successful maybe in being a physician, you know, being a professional person. Someone that's going to, if you will, bring glory to the family or make the family look good. That's the role of the family hero. And so we have all kinds of people that we see as pastors and, and so forth at Andrews who, who have this pastoral role, but boy, there's all kinds of pain and dysfunction in their family. And so I ask them, why do, you, why do you want to be a pastor? Why did you feel called to be a pastor? That's an important question. Is it because you wanted to make the family look good? Maybe not intentionally, but is there that dynamic there you need to address too, to make the family look good? And so, why do I do what I do? Extremely, extremely important. So the family hero, the family st hero still has all kind of pain going on in their lives, even though they're successful. They're lonely. They feel guilty very easily. They have all these feelings going on. All of these different roles have, have all these feelings that have not been addressed that we're going to talk about in a moment. Often there's a scapegoat in the family. And often what I see when people come to talk to me is that an adolescent, for example, will be acting out. They might have gotten pregnant or you know, gotten involved with the law somehow or whatever. And what the, the function of the scapegoat, or some people call it the black sheep of the family, is that all of the problems of the family are projected onto this one individual. You know, they're the bad one. They're the ones that are making the family look bad. The rest of us are okay. We're in denial, but we say we're okay. And so what does, what does this adolescent who comes in to talk to me, what is he really saying? His message is, without saying it, our family is not okay, and I'm bringing attention to that fact. We need help. And so who's the healthiest one in this family system? That adolescent. You bet that adolescent is the healthiest one in the family system. Seriously. 
And so remember, remember when, when, you're dealing, when you're dealing with a family system, the whole system is sick, not just the identified client or patient. The whole system needs help. The whole system needs intervention because all of these unhealthy things are going on in the family. You often then have in the family someone taking on a mascot role. A mascot or the family clown is another name for it, is the one that, that relieves tension in the family through telling jokes or being cute or funny. Okay, that's another, that's another common role that we tend to see. And um, the last, there are many, many more roles than these. I'm just giving you some of the major ones, is, is what we'll call the lost child. The lost child, responds to the, the chaos in this addicted family by withdrawing, going off to themselves and kind of going into their closet, playing with their little dollies, and, but they become very independent. I don't need this family. You know, I'm okay all by myself. And so, but they, they really are lost and they have a hard time really connecting relationally with people because they've taken on this lost child role. Now, one of the things I want to say about this before we move on is this, that these roles are not stationary. They're dynamic roles because the family system is, is in a dynamic situation. And so at one point, I might be the family hero. At another point, I might be the scapegoat. Or, you know, so I might change roles as I grow and develop in the family system. Okay? Now, here's what I want you to do next, please. If you are, can identify as a child in this kind of a dysfunctional family, what kind of feelings do you think these children might have? What kind of feelings do you think? You, you tell me, I'm going to write. Insecure. Insecure. What else? Angry. I'm sorry? Okay, shame. Isolated or alone maybe. They might feel alone or lonely. What else? Afraid, yes. Guilt. Yeah, I'm the problem, huh? They might feel guilty. What else? Rejected. I'm sorry? Inadequate. Mm -hmm. They might feel inadequate. Okay. Do you think they might feel abandoned? Could that, is that another good one maybe? What else? Can you think of what are the kind of feelings? Unloved. They might feel unloved. Anything else? Okay, you don't have to look too hard here. Now just search your own heart and figure it out. Hmm? So, all of these feelings are going on. All of these feelings are going on. Now, can these kids? go to their, their um, addict and, and co-addict parents and say, I'm feeling angry at you because you abandoned me. <laughs> Is that a safe thing for them to do? No. Remember, the, remember the rule, don't feel, don't talk. Right? And so this dynamic is set up for these kids to have all these feelings going on that they have no outlet for. And what we, what we like to describe this as is a garbage can, a garbage can. So in, in the garbage, what happens in a garbage can in the middle of summer? It stinks. The stuff inside of it rots and putrefies, okay? And so that's what happens inside these children inside us when we don't have someone who can, we can tell our story to and they can affirm our reality, right? Wow, that must have been painful. When we don't have anyone to share with, our feelings get stuffed. 
except for once in a while, what happens with all this, all, all the putrefaction in a garbage can in the summer? It's going to come out somehow, right? And so, you know what? You know about volcanic eruptions <laughs> from a garbage can? So we can stuff, 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 stuff so long, but sometime I need a release, and boom! And then we feel guilty. It's like, oh, I didn't mean to go off on you that way. But why do we? Because these feelings, this hurt, this pain has never been affirmed, ministered to, spoken. Okay? It becomes good compost. There you go. Fertilizer for somebody else. What I, what I want to tell you is that this is the condition of our hearts. This is our heart, or a part of it anyway. And you know, you know the wonderful thing I love about God is He's a heavenly sanitary engineer. Seriously, He is not afraid if we will let Him, if we will take the lid off our garbage can, He jumps on in there with us and begins this work of ministry and healing and, and cleansing and, 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 and fixing all of this stuff up. He's not afraid to get down and dirty with us. Amen. You know, I love that about God because He knows we're hurting. You know, and so, you know, He might just pick this little boy or this little girl up and say, come on now, let me talk to you. Let me tell you how precious you are to me. Let me just tell you what you need to hear from me. That's the truth about you, not all these lies that you have believed all these years. You can, you can have your feelings. You can be mad. You can do whatever you have. But let me then give you perspective on these feelings, okay? That's, that, isn't that just a wonderful God? When, see, one of the things that happens is when these feelings are not able to be expressed we have emotional illness, physical illness. Research shows that probably 60 to 70% of people who go to outpatient doctor visits, their primary issue is not the physical issue. The primary issue is an emotional issue. Remember Ellen White says nine-tenths of the diseases of the body have their foundation in the mind in the mind. This is really where most people live, where most people are hurting. And so, and so when you're dealing with someone, often we try to address their behavior. You're doing this wrong, you're doing that wrong, and we try to point that out. What they really need is someone to read their heart and to say, wow, you must really be hurting to do that and to identify these feelings here. That's, that's healing. When you point out their behavior, what it's con it feels condemning very often, even though you may not intend it to be that way. Right? But it feels that way to them. But if you can talk to their heart and to their feelings, wow, then there's a connection for them. They know that you get them. You've gone beyond their behavior to what's really going on inside, which is really, really important. Now, so let's assume this is our picture, though. And again, we're talking about our little children here. Our little ones need to, they learn how to survive. This is what I need to do to, do to survive. And there's a very big difference between them thriving and surviving. Thriving is like a plant open in the springtime, fully to the sun, drinking it all in, yay, wonderful. Surviving is that plant that should be opening itself up, keeping itself closed like a bud, never fully opening up and, and experiencing the fullness of life. And that's too often what these children are condemned to do, merely survive merely survive. So what are the, some of the things that they do to survive this painful life? What do they do? Attach to peers. Hmm? Meet peers, friends. They meet peers and friends, perhaps. Okay? They meet peers. But if my life is chaotic, somehow I need to bring it under control, right? And so often we find people with this dynamic who have control issues. Okay, because their anxiety level is so high 
about life that, that has felt so uncertain and so chaotic that I'm going to do something to bring my life under control. And so I control myself. I be, you know, I'm, I'm kind of controlling of myself, kind of rigid to kind of make life predictable. And I control everyone else around me to make my world safe. So control is a very big issue. It's a, again, remember, it's a survival mechanism for them. This is how I feel safe because life hasn't felt that way. Self-dependence. You know how you can't, this, this is connected to that don't trust rule. You know how you can't trust anybody? And so if it's going to be done right, who has to do it? I'm going to do it myself, right? I become self-dependent, okay? Because I know I can at least get it done. I've learned how to do that, and I've learned how to do it well. I talked earlier about performance orientation. We learn how to perform. We learn how to perform. We know what to do, okay, to get the goodies. If I just do this for you, I'm going to get something back from you. You know, I'm going to get some love or I'm going to get some support or whatever it is that I think I need. But this is a big trap because we often end up relating to God this way. You know, I wrote an article a while back called Performing to Please Our Heavenly Father. And when we've learned that we have to perform to please our earthly fathers, we simply transpose that onto God. Okay, and we, have, we believe that we have to perform to please Him too, which is the antithesis of the gospel. You don't have to perform to get His love. He just loves you anyway. While we were yet sinners, He died for us. But we don't get that when we become performance-oriented. And again, in families, especially in churches where there are very, very high standards, this is very often something that we see. Also, another structure is victim. Victimizer. And in victim, victimizer, often um, these children are hurt, right? They've been in these families. There is, when a love need is not, isn't met, it may not be overt abuse, but it's neglect of getting that love need met. And sometimes neglect is more damaging than overt abuse. You know, if you slap me, I can deal with that somehow. But when my when my my needs aren't met it's like i can't there's no framework in which to put that it's hard for me to process that and so these these children who who are victims in some way learn to operate with a victim expectancy i expect to be abused i expect to not have my needs met i expect to be taken advantage of and when this is my expectancy what does that predict for me? Yeah, that's what's going to happen. That's exactly what's going to happen. And so, and so we, we learn to live as victims. We get attracted to people who victimize us. But it's this cyclical thing where people who are victims often, not often, always become victimizers as well. Okay, people who are taken advantage of take advantage of other people. We, you know, we we say hurt people, hurt people, and that's just the way life works. It's just the way life works. Um, there are many, many other structures. We don't have time to go into all of them, but one is the flight one, or the fight one, fight or flight. You know, people who withdraw from conflict, who are peacekeepers. You know, uh, I have to keep the peace at all costs because I don't want you to be mad at me because daddy was mad at me a lot. I didn't like that, so I'm going to work really hard so that no one is going to be mad at me. And so all their energy goes into, into, not keeping the, into keeping the peace. But that sounds like a great Christian value, doesn't it? Let's be a peacekeeper. See, the problem is, why am I a peacekeeper? Why am I a peacekeeper? You know, is it to keep my world safe? That's about me, right? Is it to keep you from being mad at me? That's about me. And there may be times when I need to stand up and say, no, I will not permit that. But people who are into, into this flight, you know, avoiding of conflict, they can't do that easily because their whole, their whole purpose is around keeping the peace.
Other people, of course, they're fighters, you know, and they're angry people. And, and you know what anger does? It's a way of keeping people away, keeping people from being intimate with you. You know, if I'm angry enough, you won't want to be close to me. And, and that's, again, a, a very unfortunate thing, but that's what, that's what a lot of people do. They keep people away with various, various mechanisms. Another one, survival mechanism, this is really important, is the idea of addictions. Okay? I'm going to use whatever I need to use to comfort the pain that I have. I may not do what my dad did, may not do what my mom did, but I'm going to have something that I do to comfort pain. And as Adventists, we have these wonderful Adventist addictions, right? What are some of our Adventist addictions? Religiosity. Food, religiosity, Facebook. Facebook. Hmm? Well, we have the truth. Yeah. And again, it's, it's not that we don't, but it's how we relate to that that becomes so important. Okay, yes. Um, you know, shopping, okay. Another big one is work. How many of us have several offices that we do and we're always involved in doing stuff that keeps us out of our feelings? That keeps us from really connecting, you know, with ourselves. Okay? And... The, the, here's a study, you know, I, I teach in the seminary, and so I'm going to share this one with you. And this, there's a survey done of, of pastors in many, many denominations, including Adventists. And about 60% of our pastors are engaged in pornography. Okay? And so don't, don't think we're not. We are. But what's that about? It's about, these, it's about all the stuff we've been talking about here. You know, it's not, that they're, it's not that our pastors are bad people or anything. This is not about condemnation. Remember, you know, Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. It's trying to understand why it is so that we can, we can become free. Amen? So, so what, is this, what is this about then? How, what message does this give God? My controlling? What message does this give God? God, you are not big enough of a God to handle my problems. Therefore, I have to do it. I can't depend upon you because after all, when all this mess was going in my life, you weren't there anyway, we think. Therefore, I have to manage it myself. All of our structures that we build, we call these structures that we build, and we do build them, structures of self, they send messages to God about his inadequacy, and who becomes our God then? We become our own God, right? When we know who we are in Christ, we don't have to be successful. Exactly, when we really know. But the problem is getting it from here, all those wonderful Bible verses, getting them from here down to here, getting them integrated down into our hearts. Okay, that's the challenge. We know it, but we don't know it. And to know God, to know Him in all of His beautiful aspects is what's really important here. And so I build these structures, and so what's the biblical solution for all these structures that I've built? Galatians 2.20. I'm crucified with Christ. I'm died, died to myself. But listen to me real carefully. In with these children who are scared to death, who've been abused, who've been hurt, when you start talking to them about dying to themselves, what does that feel like to them? It feels like you're, t you're telling them to open themselves back up to that hurt and pain that they felt before that was so damaging to them. And so we have these wonderful biblical ideas, but there has to be skill used in order to bring people to the place where they're willing to surrender these things. You just can't say surrender. Yeah, right. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And so before we can let these things go, what needs to first happen? We need to have examples. Build trust. We need to build trust in God. How is trust built? Experientially. 
not just by someone saying, trust me, but we have, you know, when, when God encounters us, when we encounter God, that's how trust is built. And when we build trust by experiencing God in the little places, in the hurting places, then we can say, okay, God, I'm going to take a little chance to trust you with this little thing. Okay, you came through for me. All right, I'll trust you with a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more until our trust, until our faith is built in God. And we can let some of these things go. But after death comes what? What comes after death? Life. But we don't know what life is like on the other side. Resurrection life. All we know is this. This has been our safe world. But God promises us that on the other side, we have this wonderful resurrection life awaiting us, but we're scared to grab hold of it. Honestly, we are. We are afraid to grab hold of that new life because we've never had it. We don't know what it's like. It's a whole new world. Now, having said this, remember our, our Bible verse we started with? That the iniquity of the fathers is visited upon the children to the third and fourth generation. So we have kids with this They've learned to survive. Their feelings are stuffed away in a garbage can. You know, all of these roles they're taking on and these rules that, that they're living by. When they come to the place of age when they are looking for a relationship, who are they going to be attracted to? Assuming that this is still in place and that, that they haven't got healing or whatever. Who are they going to be attracted to? Someone to fulfill their, their picture that we drew. You know, you could, line, you could line 20 men up across the front of this room. 19 of them would just treat them special. One of them is going to treat them badly. Who are they going to be magnetically attracted to? That one. That one who's going to fulfill their dysfunctional scripts. The iniquity of the fathers are visited upon the children to the third and fourth generation. Well, of course, in addition to that, we know research says that the children of addicts are biologically more predisposed. Okay? They're four to 16 times more likely to become addicts because their brains function differently. And Dr. Is gonna, Dr. White's going to talk about that this afternoon. Their livers metabolize. Um, alcohol and drugs differently than, than non-addicts' livers do. In other words, they have a higher tolerance normally to begin with just because they're born as a child of an addict. And so we have the biological predispositions. We have the, the cycle that, that God said this is how life works, working. And so the iniquities of the fathers are visited upon the children to the third and fourth generations. Thank God, though, that there are courageous people like the people in this room who say, the cycle stops with me. Amen. The cycle stops with me. I'm determined by God's grace, by his intervention in my life, to stop this now. I'm going to get the help I need to break this cycle. It takes courage because it's a painful process. Recovery is not a cakewalk. Recovery is painful. And so that is the good news of the gospel as it relates to this addiction process. That God is enough. God, you see, a lot of us want God to come the way we want God to come. But God comes the way he knows we need for him to come. He's in charge. Will you let him? In this heart of yours... He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will open. We have scared little boys and girls who are hiding in their hearts, saying, I don't know if I want you, God, to come in. Because I'm scared. And so he waits. He won't abuse us to heal us. He's very respectful. He waits for us to say, Okay, God, I'm willing to let you come in and start ministering here. Okay? I'm willing to let you come. And so my question is easy. Will you let him come into your life and to do the work he wants to do today?
Bless you. This media was produced by Audioverse for the NAD Health Summit. If you would like to learn more about the NAD Health Summit, please visit www.nadhealthsummit.com or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.